This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Wednesday. How are you, Daphna? I'm doing great, except that our first question is about hearing, which is actually <laughs> the the part of the the topic matter that I that I have the hardest time with. You're the one walking around the unit with your decibel me- meter. That's right. <laughs> but that's an easy thing to remember. It's funny. I you made me download the decibel meter on my phone, and mm-hmm. the other day I pulled it out in the middle of our living room just to annoy mm-hmm. my wife and daughter. <laughs> And I was like, people, the decibels are too high. Are too high. <laughs> I thought my wife was going to kill me. You know, but that's an interesting thing that we do. Humans do. Probably other animals do. I don't know. But anyways, somebody talks loud. Somebody else talks a little bit louder. Somebody else talks a little bit louder. Then all of a sudden, everybody's talking very, very loudly. So actually, I think that's a great thing to do at home. You know? I will, I will not be doing that again. Uh, this is terrible <laughs> advice. But when I was in high school, we had this high school teacher who, if we got louder in the class, like if there was too much chatter, she would just stop talking and wait for the chatter to come down. Mm-hmm. And then I remember this one day where she stopped talking and the chatter get, kept getting louder and louder. <laughs> and what she happened? Gets, she got so mad, like she slammed something <laughs> on the desks and we all got startled. But it was, uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, we, we, we digress. Um, ne- neurology, neonatology, neurology, question number 11. A six-month-old female presents a neonatal follow-up clinic. She had an initial newborn screen that resulted in a refer for both ears. Further audiology testing revealed a 60-decibel hearing loss bilaterally. Parents have normal hearing. Both parents have normal hearing. Uh, what is the most appropriate intervention for the infant in this vignette? Your choices are A, amplification device, B, cochlear implant, C, reassurance and observation, D, repeat audiologic testing, E, teach the family sign language. Right. So interestingly, I have a, a close friend who um, whose son um has pretty severe um, hearing impairment. So I had been watching their journey. Um, and mm. so that how ha- that helped me answer the question in full disclosure. So um, an amplification device um, helps, it says what it, it does, helps amplify sound. So that was definitely um, one of the options that I had on my list. Um, cochlear implant. Um, I remember this question and I have answered cochlear implant before because that's what I thought was the right answer. Um, but this baby is still, um, didn't, didn't get the first trial of amplification. So, um, it's not cochlear implant. Um, and then, you know, C and D, um, are, 
really inadequate because this baby's already had two hearing tests that um, show at least moderate hearing loss Mm -hmm. and then teach the family sign language. So um, that's certainly an option. Um, A six month old is maybe just starting, would just be starting to learn sign. And um, if a family wanted to intervene, which not all families do, um, there's certainly discussion about that in the deaf community, but um, if they wanted to, then, then this would be the time, uh, to do, to trial an amplification device. Okay. So yes, the answer is a amplification device. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I think it's right. I think hearing is something that we all sort of are afraid of because we don't mm-hmm. really deal with it, but, uh, let me start off with some statistics because I think that was actually interesting to me. So mm-hmm. about 2% of the newborn hearing screens we do in the, in the hospital, uh, leads to a refer, uh, which means that they, they failed hearing screen. And of those, 15 to 20% will have uh, confirmed hearing loss. And so then you get into what is hearing loss, right? And basically, based on the, on the, of the, based on the decibels that uh, you're able to hear, you can be classified, uh, whether you have normal hearing, mild, moderate, moderate, severe, severe, or profound. And... So for um, the number of, of decibels that need to be reached in order to uh, actually have somebody here, if you have mild hearing loss, it would be 26 to 40 decibels. Mm-hmm. Moderate would be 40 to 50. Moderate to severe would be uh, 55 to 70. Severe would be 70 to 90. And profound hearing loss is above 90 decibel, meaning like the sound has to be like above 90 decibel for the person to actually register that. Um, so going back, um, so I think, um, going back into the question, the audiology testing reveals 60 decibel hearing loss bilaterally. So when we go back, that would put us like moderate to severe hearing loss. And I'm assuming that if we do have questions on the board about hearing loss, the, the, the testing decibels will, will not be really equivocal. I doubt that they're going to do like, uh, very, like they will make it very obvious. So how do we address how do we address uh, hearing loss, right? So you've mentioned a few things, and amplification devices are the first step that uh, everybody should be um, should be receiving in order to address hearing loss. So uh, children with mild hearing loss, uh, twenty five to forty decibels, uh, will uh, qualify for amplification, and like you said, we'll just amplify the noise so they can actually register it. Anything above mild hearing loss. Um, will have a two-stage process. And I think that's kind of interesting because you mentioned your, your friends who have had to go through this quote-unquote, mm-hmm. you said, journey. I think that's a good way to remember that it's several steps. And so the first step would be um, amplification with intensive speech and language therapy. Mm-hmm. And so that would be the first step for anybody with uh, moderate all the way to severe um, hearing impairment. Now, once you do this, if you have done this for several months and you have no improvement, then you can go to a cochlear implant. Obviously, we mentioned amplification and intensive speech and language therapy for babies who have moderate, moderate to severe or severe um, language uh, hearing impairment. I'm sorry. Anybody with profound hearing impairment, 85 decibels or more, can go straight to a cochlear implant. But the cochlear implant is actually quite cool. I mean, it's, it's basically an implant that goes into the cochlea, which is that, that snail-looking uh, organ in the ear, right? And 
it stimulates the auditory nerve endings at the basal membrane of the, co the, the cochlea. And that is supposed to um, help improve hearing of these children. So to summarize, um, we have several layers of hearing impairment. We have mild, 26 to 40 decibels, moderate, 40 to 55, moderate to severe, 55 to 70, severe, 70 to 90, profound, anything above 90 decibels. The first step for mild hearing impairment is amplification. Anything above mild starts with amplification, intensive speech and language therapy, and eventually your cochlear implant if there's no improvement. If you have profound hearing loss, 85 decibels or more, cochlear implant right away. So, so we have two choices, obviously, in the answer. We have amplification device, which is the answer. Cochlear implant, which obviously is not the first step, the most appropriate intervention at this stage. Reassurance and observation would be doing this family a disservice. Repeat audiologic testing. It's like, yeah, the, we, the audiologic testing has been done. It's confirmed the diagnosis. There's no reason right now to suspect mm -hmm. that the results are not reliable. So that's not a, that's not a uh, solution. Teaching the family sign language is definitely an option but it's not an intervention in and of itself to alleviate the, the hearing loss of this child. So um, it's not like it's the wrong thing to do. It's just not the right intervention at this time, but, but yes, definitely something this family uh, can, be, can consider. Yeah, that's it, question 11. Sounds good, thank you. Okay, question 13. A 3,500 gram full-term male infant is delivered by cesarean section because of breech presentation. The baby is admitted to the intensive care unit because of mild respiratory distress. The symptoms resolve by eight hours of age. Oral feedings progress poorly because of sleepiness and a weak suck. Physical examination reveals an appropriately grown infant with hypotonia and subtle dysmorphic features, including almond-shaped eyes and bitemporal wasting. The rest of the examination is normal, except that the testes are undescended bilaterally. What is the most likely diagnosis of the infant in this vignette? A, Angelman syndrome. B, congenital disorder of glycosylation. C, myotonic dystrophy. D, Prader-Willi syndrome. Or E, spinal muscular atrophy. Um, yeah, this is a very, very high yield question. I remember my attendings telling me hypotonia, undescended bilateral testicle, pretty willy. Mm -hmm. I mean, just, just almost automatic uh, mm -hmm. association, right? So in this case, we do have um, a 3,500 gram full-term male that has undescended testicles bilaterally, that has uh, hypotonia. Um, yeah, the other features, I think, are confirming the, the suspicion of Preta Willie with the almond-shaped eyes. That's something also I, I've remembered before about Preta Willie. Um, and, but yeah, hypotonia, undescended testicles, Preta Willie. That was my answer, choice D. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, this is just the clinical vignette for a baby with Preta Willie syndrome. Um, and I think you covered the main um, features. Um, so... Poor oral feeding um, is a very big one. That's not what we were taught in medical school, right? We were taught that they have hyperphagia, but that hyperphagia doesn't really begin until early childhood. And in the neonatal period, the hallmark feature is poor oral feeding. And in fact, some of them have uh, very bad weight gain um, because the, the feeding is so um, poor. And many of these babies leave um, the NICU with some sort of um, feeding conduit. 
They also have small hands and feet and the muscle bulk uh, may be appear diminished. Um, and that's uh, part of why they also have this bitemporal wasting. So that's a good buzzword um, for these babies with Prader-Willi syndrome. Um, they usually do not have respiratory failure, um, but they can still have some uh, respiratory distress. And certainly any baby who comes to the unit can have respiratory distress. So we do see some uh, mild respiratory distress in, sometimes in babies with Prader-Willi syndrome. And I think another important thing we should talk about is uh, the genetics of Prader-Willi syndrome, because this is another common question. So Prader-Willi syndrome is an example of uniparental disomy. So in Prader-Willi syndrome, a baby receives both copies um, of, of the gene from the mother. Um, the uh, other probably most commonly tested example of uniparental disomy is Angelman syndrome, where mm -hmm. both copies come from the father. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we can talk about Angelman syndrome, also a syndrome that presents with hypotonia, mental deficiency. These babies have a lot of ataxia and jerky movements. They can frequently have seizures and they have a protruding tongue and they have maxillary hypoplasia. Mm -hmm. um, so in general, these babies have a positive demeanor and it's these jerky movements that um, have unfortunately, given, given the name, people call these, some of these babies like, like happy puppets, which mm. is, I think, not a great name, but it's because of those kind of um, jerky movements um, that are seen. Um, and again, I, so I, they're both uniparental disomy. I remember that angel man means both copies are coming from the father. And in Prader-Willi syndrome, both copies are coming from the mother. So regarding disorders of glycosylation, of which they are many, um, but most present with uh, hypotonia, they can have microcephaly. They also have abnormal distribution of fat, um, but that they have more fat in the suprapubic, iliac, and buttocks region. Um, they can have inverted nipples, strabismus, cardiomyopathy, hypoglycemia, and seizures. Myotonic dystrophy uh, also presents with hypotonia um, and, and can present in the neonatal period. It affects both skeletal and cardiac muscle. Um, and these babies can have impressive, you know, respiratory failure and feeding difficulty. They have generalized muscle weakness. They have contractures, uh, mask-like faces, um, and tented upper lip. And a big buzzword is that mothers of affected infants may um, also have myotonic faces and a very firm handshake. This is also something that they like uh, to ask about the genetics for. And so it's uh, important to remember that myotonic dystrophy, um, they have the trinucleotide repeats. Yeah, it's this, it's this phenomenon of um, anticipation, genetic mm -hmm. anticipation, where the mother will have a certain, a certain uh, intensity of symptoms and then it gets worse with each generation. That's and I right. actually had a, a case like that in my, in my career where... Um, the baby was diagnosed and the mother really did not believe anything mm -hmm. could be wrong with her child. But then as we asked her, we realized that she had stopped, she had to stop uh, doing physical activities in high school because she wow. would trip more often. And then as we asked her more and more history, it turned out that she had experienced symptoms and her, and her other children had symptoms too. 
and we unearthed this 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 whole um yeah, family, whole, tree. Yeah, family tree and it was it was it was one of the most uh, surreal experiences of my career where um yeah this baby that showed up with just issues with tone and stuff um became a whole genetic uh right Wow. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, you know, there are lots of things that we are pick, we pick up in babies and then we diagnose in mommies, right? Yeah. Um, uh, the other answer, E, spinal muscular atrophy or SMA. Um, there are obviously many types, um, but in general, they have generalized weakness. They can have joint contractures. Um, they can uh, have uh, absent deep tendon reflexes and tongue fasciculations. Um, and this is really a deterioration in motor neurons that leads to uh, motor delays and frequently associated with um, early death secondary to respiratory compromise. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's some other associations with hypotonia. So the trisomies, uh, 21, 18, and 13 have uh, low tone. There are other muscle disorders, um, which we'll talk about in a little in the, in the end of the week. Um, and then certainly a, a baby uh, with, you know, a poor suck, sleepiness, um, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy is on the differential. But because of all of these other clinical findings, um, that's what makes it uh, help us pick Prader-Willi syndrome. Okay. All right. So then... We're doing another question, right? Mm -hmm, 21. Okay. So next question is neurology question number 21. Intraventricular hemorrhage is associated with adverse neurodevelopmental outcomes and affects up to 25% of very low birth weight infants. Of the multiple antenatal prevention strategy targeted at improvement of outcomes in premature infant, the antenatal intervention that has been associated with a reduction in IVH is slash R, choice A, um, corticosteroids, Choice B, indomethacin. Choice C, magnesium sulfate. And then you have combinations. So you have choice D, which is A and B, meaning steroids and magnesium. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, choice D is A and B, so steroids and indomethacin. And then choice E, all of the above, steroids, indomethacin, and magnesium. So this is so interesting. So I was on call and I had to do a prenatal consult and I was talking about steroids and the mom said to me, so those are the steroids that are supposed to help produce, uh, supposed to help reduce bleeding in the brain. And I said, that's exactly right. <laughs> and so it, corticosteroids do lots of things, but they have been associated with a reduction um, of, of intraventricular hemorrhage. So I know that A is correct. Then we got to get into the weeds here. So indomethacin, so lots of talk about indomethacin and PDAs and IVH, um, but that's predominantly in the postnatal period. Mm -hmm. um, so not prenatal. And in fact, uh, prenatal indomethacin, I believe, has been associated with worse uh, IVH outcomes. Um, and then mag sulfate, um, I think this would be an easy place to get um, triple but it, it's not about IVH. It's about decreasing cerebral palsy. So um, then it's A, corticosteroids. Yeah, good call. It's, it is corticosteroids. I think you're absolutely right. The, the, the presence of the magnesium sulfate can be very tricky. Mm -hmm. And I think if uh, Dr. Brodsky and Martin would have wanted to have, um, could have made this question 
a nightmare if they had given the option of A and C. Because mm-hmm. if you had right. antenatal steroids and magnesium, then you start wondering, it's like, oh, is it both? Is it not? But in this case, you knew that corticosteroid and magnesium sulfate could only be together if you picked all of the above. So mm-hmm. yes, only antenatal steroids have been shown to reduce IVH significantly, almost by like 50%. Mm-hmm. Now, the mechanism by which it does that is, is still not really understood. Um, for that effect to take place, I think steroids have to be, I guess, have, have to have been given for 24 to 48 hours to, mm-hmm. to show some effect. Um, and it reduces actually both the incidence and the severity of IVH. Um, there's obviously other uh, things that we could do. The most notable one is um, preventing premature birth. That goes without saying, mm-hmm. but also transferring mothers to a more regional uh, uh, neonatal center. So allowing the mother to deliver in a center that has a higher level of acuity, higher level of support would reduce the incidence of IVH, considering that potentially they would have more experience reducing the risks of these of these complications. Other, um, other interventions have been looked at, um, delivering by C-section versus natural delivery, vitamin K, phenobarbital, magnesium. All these things have not been shown to reduce the incidence of IVH. Now, going back to the answer choices, I think you mentioned magnesium sulfate could be tricky because I don't know about I don't know about the our audience, but I know that when we go to labor and delivering, labor and delivery, they often say mag for neuroprotection, right? Mm-hmm. And so you you could think if you hear this often enough that like oh magnesium for neuroprotection, you'd be like well IV no IVH seems like nice neuroprotection, mm-hmm. and then we reduce IVH in our NICU by putting babies on the neuroprotection bundle. Mm-hmm. So I mean this is just uh, it's just uh, a perfect setup, yeah, yeah. <laughs> perfect setup to make. This. But no, you're right. Magnesium sulfate is um, really meant to reduce cerebral palsy. Um, and then when it comes to indomethacin, um, like you said, it's, 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 it's been used as a tocolytic agent to try mm-hmm. to reduce the incidence of preterm labor, but it's falling out of favor mostly because of uh, poor neonatal outcomes associated with mothers who've received indomethacin. One of them that I remember from a paper and a discussion I've had is NEC, um, mm-hmm. babies uh, who are 34 weeks or less who get indomethacin. Mothers, uh, their babies have a high risk of NEC. Yeah, that's, that's it. Okay, sounds good. All right. We're, we, we did Wednesday. Hump day is behind us. Phew. <laughs> See y'all tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Daphne. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at nikupodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.